Welcome back to Pinpoint History, everyone. Before we start this episode, I just want to thank everyone who's been listening to the podcast. I hit a total of 300 total downloads this week, and I'm super pumped about it. Also, we've reached another milestone. We made it to episode 10. Double digits, baby. Let's go. Thank you again to all listeners who helped me get here. And to anyone who is listening to this podcast episode long after it's been released, a huge thank you to you as well. I really wanted to get to episode 10, and here we are. Next celebration is at episode 25. Perhaps this is a bit audacious of me to ask, but for episode 25, I would love to hit 1,500 downloads. If you're enjoying the podcast, please give it a five-star rating wherever you're listening to it, and tell other history lovers you know about the podcast. I appreciate each and every one of you, and I'm thankful for your support. Now, let's begin the episode. Last week's episode was a rollercoaster ride of events that Philip had to guide the Macedonians through. Luckily for Macedonia, Philip was up to the task. After killing all other rivals to the throne, Philip was able to avenge his brother Perdiccas and the fallen soldiers by defeating the Illyrians in battle. Philip won a major victory, and for the moment, had earned himself some much-needed breathing room. In last week's episode, I said that Philip had married an Illyrian noblewoman named Audata following the defeat of Perdiccas III back in 359 BCE. Some sources claim that the marriage occurred after Philip's victory against the Illyrians. Either way, Audata would be the first wife Philip married, but certainly not the last. The victory had also expanded Macedonia's boundaries, reclaiming all of Upper Macedonia, but some lands further west where native Illyrian speakers lived. The local petty kingdoms of Upper Macedonia are also no longer mentioned after Philip's victory. With the aristocracy of the region coming to court as Philip's companions. What that means is the aristocracy of Upper Macedonia were given good positions as army commanders, ranked highly in the court system. Philip was able to make this work by demonstrating that there was more to be gained by joining with him, more spoils of war, and a more luxurious lifestyle than they would otherwise have had had they remained in power. It's interesting to note that this would force Philip to adopt a more aggressive posture militarily, as conquest and war was the primary source of enrichment. This becomes a cyclical process whereby more war was needed to gain more treasure and so on. You get the point. Within the new boundaries of Macedonia, Philip began to build settlements closer to his borders with the Illyrians, with some walled cities as well as hosting garrisons of soldiers. Philip populated these settlements with citizens who lived in more rural areas and moved citizens from Lower Macedonia into the settlements as well, and inhabitants of Upper Macedonia into the colony cities that would be founded as time went on. The royal army also began to change. Philip could now levy more troops as he had a wider pool of men to draw on, and his territory increased in size. In Adrian Goldworthy's book, Philip and Alexander, it is claimed that half of the pike phalanx and cavalry were now recruited from Upper Macedonia. This helped create new social bonds between the men of both regions of Macedonia, and the army as a whole would look to their king for guidance, glory, and spoils of war. While it's fun to hear about battles and war, things taper off for the Macedonians for a year or so before things start to rev up again for Philip and the Macedonians. 
I want to talk about the diplomacy Philip began to engage in and the economic situation in Macedonia as well. By the end of Philip's life, he would have seven wives, all of whom were for political reasons. We spoke first about the first marriage of Philip, marrying a noblewoman from Illyria, Audata. The marriage between Philip and Audata would produce a child, a daughter named Kainane. In traditional Illyrian fashion, Audata would train her daughter as a warrior, and this would be the tradition that would continue with Kainane's daughter Eurydice. While Kainane and Eurydice will have non-existent roles in the retelling of Philip and Alexander, they will have a major role to play in the post-Alexander struggle for power. Philip married again in 358 BC to what may have been a royal family from Upper Macedonia. To further cement ties with Upper Macedonia, he married again to a woman named Phila, possibly a member of the Upper Macedonian's royal family. While Philip did a good job of getting much of the Upper Macedonian aristocracy on his side, with his dazzling display of charisma, military victory, and use of political marriage, Philip couldn't win over everyone. A brother of the new bride, Phila, resented Philip and wanted to exile, and he would fight against his brother-in-law in the future. This is probably the standard approach toward incorporating new lands and the various upper classes that came with them. Philip's marriage with Phila produced no children that we know of, and if there were any children, they most likely did not survive early childhood. Now, if you'll recall from two episodes ago when we talked about Philip's childhood, Philip's eldest brother Alexander had intervened in the Thessalian power struggle. We'll cover Macedonian relationships with the Thessalian League as we progress, and I'll give some more context for us to understand the region when it is necessary. What is important for now is that there had once been a ruler in Thessaly known as Jason of Phorae. The Greeks called people who ruled undemocratically tyrants. We shouldn't confuse the word with our modern conception of the word today. It is meant to indicate that a region is under one-person rule that is not a monarchy. When Jason was assassinated in 370 BCE, according to Xenophon, Jason's brother took power, who was then killed by another brother, and then Jason's son killed his uncle to gain power. So, just your run-of-the-mill power struggle. Jason's son Alexander ruled harshly, and this divided Thessaly, which then requested aid from Macedonia. To bring us back to Philip, with Thessaly now divided in two, and with separate interests from one another, Philip, ever the consummate statesman, married two women from Thessaly, each from opposing faction. As Mac from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia says, I'm playing both sides so that I always come out on top. And so, now we're at four wives. Jokes aside, this is a shrewd move on Philip's part. The relationship with Thessaly is important, and marrying someone from either faction could be tantamount to declaring favor for one side or another. By marrying women from each faction makes Philip's foreign policy towards Thessaly murky. Each woman would have a child from their marriage with Philip. From faction one, we have Philina of Larissa. She gave Philip his first son, a boy named Aridaeus. Now, Aridaeus was the firstborn son of Philip. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, if Aridaeus is the firstborn, did he die young? And the answer is no. Aridaeus lived into adulthood and outlived his younger brother Alexander. 
The main reason for Alexander ascending to the throne instead of Herodias is due to him having some kind of mental disability. We aren't sure of the extent of his disability, but it was enough that it disqualified him from the throne. Once again, Herodias, like his half-sister, will feature prominently after the death of his brother. From faction 2 of Thessaly, we have Nicespolis. Her and Philip had a daughter named Thessalonike. We don't know much about Nicespolis, as she died shortly after childbirth. And, I'm sure you're noticing a pattern here, Thessalonike will play a large role in the post-Alexander era. Now, we come to the most famous wife of Philip, Olympias. Olympias was from the tribe of Molossians, part of the tribal groups that made up the kingdom of Epirus. Olympias' uncle, who was king of Epirus, agreed to a marriage alliance with Philip, which secured the Macedonian southwestern border. Olympias' marriage with Philip is a contested relationship. Early in the marriage, it is said that there was actual love between the two, but things became tense between the two as Philip continued his political marriages. Olympias is the mother of Alexander, and yes, that Alexander. Olympias gave birth to Alexander in 356 BCE, and early on, it became apparent that Alexander was the heir apparent. His brother Aridaeus and his uncle Amenitus were the only people who were political rivals to the throne. Olympias held massive amounts of influence over his son, and would once again, I'm saying this, play a massive role in the post-Alexander world. If you haven't picked up on it yet, shit is going to hit the fan pretty much immediately after Alexander dies. Then, we have Mida of Edessos. Not much is known about her, other than when Philip died, she committed suicide to follow her husband to the fields of Elysium. And last but not least, we have Cleopatra to round things off. Cleopatra was the first Macedonian wife that Philip took. While the other wives of Philip's were marriage to consolidate power and make allies with the powers immediately in the vicinity of Macedonia, this indicates to me that despite the future successes of Philip, many of the aristocracy of the core of Lower Macedonia wanted more influence in court. Philip would have two children with Cleopatra, or so the sources say, a boy and a girl. Things here get a little messy because Philip will die in 336 BCE. His marriage to Cleopatra was in 337 BCE. They would have a daughter in 336 and allegedly have a boy shortly afterward. The timing of this to me is very unlikely. And both children will not play a role in the post-Alexander era. Now that we've spoken about the royal women and the children of Philip, will round off with the Macedonian economy. The concepts we have of economies are of country-wide affairs, interconnected with a large global economy. While we still have physical money, the amount of money circulating in the world doesn't add up to the amount of physical money that exists. Ancient economies don't work in that manner. And I'll give you a disclaimer now. I'm no expert on ancient economies, but I think I can give you enough of an idea in this particular case. Royal revenue came from several places. Some of the larger sources of revenue came directly from the royal forests, territory directly under the control of the king. 
These forests contained many trees. These trees were unlike the trees from the mountainous regions of Greece. Macedonia was further north, and as a result, had a large amount of fully grown trees. These trees were essential to Athens in particular, who relied heavily on their naval fleets. Much of the supply for the Athenian navy came in trade with Macedonia. Upper Macedonia had silver mines that could produce up to a single silver talent a year. If we conform to Athenian weights, one silver talent would equal around 6,000 drachmae. To further put this into its perspective, one drachma a day would be considered a fair wage to a skilled laborer. Later in Philip's reign, as the territory under his command grew, so did his wealth. Philip was able to open new silver and gold mines, and at the height of his profit from these mines was raking in a staggering 1,000 talents per year. Philip would mint a variety of coins, namely the gold statter and the silver tetradrachm, tetradrachms being equivalent to four drachma. During Alexander's reign, the tetradrachm would be spread across Asia Minor and into Syria as well. Fun fact, this is allegedly the type of coinage that Judas accepted when betraying Jesus. 30 tetradrachms equals 120 drachma. We don't know how inflation may have affected the coinage, but if we use the Athenian standard, Judas betrayed Jesus for the amount of up to four months' pay. Very little to betray the Messiah. Philip had also instituted land tolls and taxes which would increase the take the government would receive. The increase in wealth and land was used widely. Throughout Greece, citizens were part-time soldiers and farmers, and this was the same in Macedonia. With the increase in wealth and land, Philip was able to pay his soldiers wages and give them profits from the lands he had received. What this meant for Macedonia was that it now had a regular full-time professional army. Men, whose sole occupation was war. Philip was smart, and he and the army trained diligently, going on forced marches in full gear. Philip, to increase the mobility of his army, had his soldiers carry the weapons and packs on their backs to move faster and not rely heavily on cumbersome supply lines. The reason for the mobility was that unlike most of the ancient Greek world, who fought using heavy bronze armor, and carried heavy shields. The heaviest item that the Macedonian pikemen would carry would be their sarissa. All this in combination meant that the Macedonian soldiers were fitter and had more endurance than the people they would face off against. And 20 years of drilling and actual combat made the Macedonian army the most formidable fighting force in Greece, and later on, as we'll see, in Asia. Lastly, the other way to increase income was plundering from their enemies. Plunder could range from physical goods to livestock, horses, and sadly slaves. While we don't see much of slavery practiced in Macedonia, slavery was a common sight in ancient Greece. And while the Macedonians may not have engaged with using slaves as much as the rest of the Greek world, they had no problem enslaving women and children from conquered tribes and selling them. As we spoke about earlier, the system of dependence Philip had established with the nobles perpetuated a cycle of war. War and plunder always helped keep the nobles happy, 
the soldiers happy, and if they were happy, then the king is happy, and they would remain happy. Philip would practically spend his entire reign campaigning, securing his borders, and making his influence known in southern Greece and asserting Macedonian power in Thrace and Illyria through force and diplomacy. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Once again, thank you so much for the support. It means a lot to me. Follow me on Instagram at pinpoint underscore history on Instagram and email me any questions you have at thepinpointhistory at gmail.com. We'll see you next week and let's get it.